quick warning before we start this episode. Today, we are going to be talking about mental health and various mental health disorders, and also a little bit of suicide and suicidal ideation. If this is something that could be a trigger for you, we want you to take care of yourself. Come a little closer. Let's talk about how difficult it is to live with an anxiety disorder. Here's some tips for showering on a very hard day. There's a tool called Rebalance with Mindfulness, which I find really helpful. And this is about helping you to accept your feelings. I've spent the last month living inside mental health Instagram. I've been affirmed. I don't look like pain, right? I don't look like I've been diagnosed. Set a finger down if you have trust issues. Put a finger down. Put a finger down. Emotionally unstable and nobody knows it. According to one TikTok quiz, I may be depressed, anxious, and borderline. I'm crying a lot. Even more types of OCD. Hey guys, I'm Bipolar Bobby, and this is Northy. We're in the car. According to another, I just need to add more protein to my diet. If you're anxious and you know what you I've been given recommendations for so many drugs that I've never even heard of. But the ones I have heard of... Zoloft. Don't worry, already on that one. Take my pill and a half a day. Boom. Love, love me some Zoloft. But I've also been given recommendations for Xanax, Clonopin, some kind of horse tranquilizers, which sound fucking great, probiotics, prebiotics, camel milk, and Valium. When we fight off feelings, when we what are the most common signs? Feeling have complex PTSD symptoms, ADHD, and trauma share. And difficulty concentrating like forever since I made a video. How much my OCD cost? OCD has devastated me by Spending all this time on mental health Instagram and TikTok accounts, I've got to tell you something. I've never felt worse. And I'm not the only one. I am not at all alone in feeling terrible after consuming lots and lots of content on mental health Instagram and TikTok. I'm generally not in favor. I I feel like there is a line that they kind of, like if there's a tightrope of 50% good, 50% can do public harm, I feel like mental health influencers kind of thread that line and lean towards the harm side or the potential for harm. That's Erin Jones. She's a former trauma counselor and a psychologist. When I put out a call on my Instagram for which mental health influencers I should be following and who I should be talking to for this episode, there were a handful of people that expressed concern about the general existence of mental health social media. Her DM really stood out to me. I did an experiment where I went and I looked at the people that I really liked. There's one person that I just love, and this person was a psychiatrist. And she was just talking about depression and trauma education and mental health education, which is great. I think education is great. But after just looking at 10 to 20 TikToks of her describing the depression cycle and the spiral, I started to feel really bad. And I was like, why does this making me feel so bad? And I realized I was re-experiencing some depression that I've been going through this past year, and I had no one to talk to about it. It was one-sided. 
it was just me staring at a screen and I could just keep going and looking and looking and looking for more answers. But I don't think, well, I know I wouldn't have found them there, but I don't know if most people know that. And I think that that is dangerous because, you know, I actually talked to one woman who didn't want to come on the show, but she told me, you know, she read so much from one mental health influencer that she was like, oh, I'm definitely bipolar. And then her friend had pills that are prescribed for when you're bipolar. But she's like, the friend was like, I'm not bipolar, but I can't use these pills. Do you want these pills? And this woman got so sick. Mm. But I feel like that is happening. But more than we think, right? People are self-diagnosing and then getting themselves into dangerous situations, which makes me very, very nervous. Yeah, it's a public safety issue. Right? Yeah. I really am on the fucking fence because I'm like, I think it's wonderful that people also have something to make them just feel a little bit better, especially moms, because we're not, I don't think postpartum depression and trauma is not treated at all seriously. So there is a sense of community, but then there is also a line because so many, so many people are not licensed therapists too that are giving. Right, right. Or their license was revoked and now they're a mental health influencer. So here's the conundrum. We don't have adequate mental health care in this country. We don't. It's a fucked up, terrible system. But the stuff that we turn to online might be even more worrisome, even more dangerous at times than we even know. But some of it is good and some of it is helpful. There just has to be a way to figure out what is what. There also has to be a way that we can feel better. We're going to try to figure all of this out together. I'm Joe Piazza, and you're under the influence. Episode 5, The Parasocial Socials. Okay, therapists in Philadelphia that take insurance. This is a popular fucking Google search. (laughs) So I've been trying for a while now to find a therapist who takes my insurance here in Philadelphia. Hello, you've reached the After Hours Answering Service for the University of Pennsylvania Health System outpatient like Most of it just involves a lot of phone calls, a lot of pressing one to talk to someone and then getting an answering machine and then never getting called back. You have reached the Center for Growth. If you're a new client and wish to talk with a And that's not even how I've had to deal with my insurance company to find out what exactly the hell they even cover, if they're going to cover anything. I don't know. I don't know. This is not a crisis line and should not be used for emergencies. If you are experiencing a crisis... So for now, all I've got is mental health Instagram. But I'm getting more and more wary of it. We learned last week that this is nothing new. People have been getting help from media since the beginning of the media. From books, from TV hosts, from people on the radio. And all of these have worked with varying degrees of success. Social media is just the 21st century iteration of that. But as I talk to more and more people about this, I'm starting to realize that there's just new issues with this kind of mental health advice. 
giving out mental health advice on social media on a device that lives in your pocket all the time, that changes things. But what exactly is it changing? What exactly is the difference? The way that I've perceived mental health influencers is folks who may have a license, may have accreditation, but maybe not, and maybe the not is their draw, who mass espouse mental health advice in digestible nuggets online. That's Amanda Montel. She's an author and a linguist, and she has this great podcast called Sounds Like a Cult, where she breaks down common groups in our society that are probably a a cult. She recently did an episode on mental health influencers, which is why I gave her a call. Now, it is nice to know that it's not just me singing this. I really like validation. And frankly, you know what? Validation is what's driving so much of our desire to seek out this sort of content. We want reassurance that what we're feeling and seeing and how messed up our brains feel all the time, that it's not just us. We want a shared experience. And Amanda Montel found so much of this in her own reporting on mental health influencers. Some of these people end up having a net positive effect. Um, They spread awareness. They destigmatize mental health. But of course, like everything else on the internet, this can go wrong very, very quickly. So there are some mental health influencers who are sort of capitalizing on the conspiratorial proclivities of our culture right now and can intentionally or unintentionally take advantage of someone's desire to want to heal themselves without an expensive therapist or without pharmaceuticals because the pharmaceutical industry can be exploitative and there are problems with it. So there are people who see this very valid problem and then use the dark magic of the algorithm to push people down rabbit holes into potentially much more dangerous QAnon-level territory. Um, But yeah, I've seen people totally disown their families, go off their medication. I spoke to someone whose brother attempted suicide because of the negative effects of the ideas that he was learning from one mental health influencer in particular. So it can get really dark. Okay, okay. I'm going to slow us down here. This does not always go into life-threatening territory, but it is a definite possibility. So we do need to back up and talk a little bit about how people can even get to the point where they will just blindly follow whatever their mental health influencer of choice tells them to do, even if deep down they know that this is not the right path to go down. And what I'm learning is that this has to do with the way that we relate to influencers in general. Mental health creators today have a much more direct and intimate pipeline to their audiences than advice givers have ever had before. That veil between creator and consumer, between advice giver and advice taker, those are the terms that I'm using, is incredibly thin and with social media practically non-existent. That can make things very confusing on both ends. People, I think, forget that they know a lot about me, so they feel connected to me, but I don't know them really at all. That's Amanda White. We have two Amandas on this show. This Amanda is a clinical psychologist and a therapist who runs the Therapy for Women Center here in Philly. 
Amanda White has nearly half a million Instagram followers who regularly read her content on mental health, sobriety, working through shame, practicing self-compassion, and reparenting yourself. It's worth noting here that just looking at Amanda White's account feels comforting. That it's beautiful. Lots of soft hues, millennial pink. It's just lovely. Now, Amanda is very smart, and she also sees both sides of the Instagram mental health quandary. On one hand, woo fucking who that we are finally talking about this in a real and unfiltered and often helpful way. I feel like millennials specifically, they've kind of been dubbed the therapy generation and have done a lot of work to destigmatize therapy. We're finally talking about mental health. I mean, the pandemic completely blew the lid off with finally everyone, like I think really a lot of stigma going away with that. But I think it was there before too. On the other hand, this cannot be our only form of therapy. It's unregulated. People can say they're a licensed professional or a therapist and no one is really checking up on that. There's, I think, a big overstep sometimes with coaches. Some coaches are fantastic, but some coaches can think that they're therapists and they can not totally know where that line is, which can be frustrating. Instagram is just not a place that's designed to filter out bad advice. It's not. In fact, a lot of times the algorithm gives you the absolute worst advice. I think, though, the biggest thing is that social media is not, even though it feels very targeted to you because it's, you know, with the algorithm, it shows us what we want to see. It's not always targeted to what you need to see or what's best. So it's interesting being a therapist in person and then also on Instagram because I say things on Instagram that I might never bring up or talk about with a client individually because it's just not relevant to what they're going through or not helpful. But I don't know who's on the other side of receiving my content on Instagram. So I try to make it general, but also, you know, give as many PSAs and disclosures as I possibly can. But inadvertently, you will see content that is not meant for you. And sometimes you don't know that it's not meant for you. You don't know that it's not meant for you, but you get sucked in anyway, because there is a human that is on the other side of that screen, drawing you in and making you feel seen. They get you the same way that horoscopes and psychics get you. Amanda, even though she's a very, very good person, is actually one of those people that draws me in. I started following Amanda for research because a lot of you recommended her to me. But now I find myself really looking forward to her posts. I do. She's got great advice. She is completely relatable. And that relatability can be a problem. It could be a problem because sometimes she also feels like a friend. A friend who is a lot smarter than you and who has read different books than you have. But that intimacy is part of the problem. Because her followers, me included, sometimes feel like we sort of know her. I think it's why we have even more of a responsibility, because if I'm thinking about this from a therapeutic perspective, one of the most important things of therapy is we acknowledge that there's a power differential. It has to be hard, because I also think that when someone feels so knowledgeable, as you are genuinely knowledgeable, but you're also so personable, 
on, um, on, on Instagram that people must feel like they've developed a friendship with you. And so it has to be hard to not be able to, to help everyone, to help every single person out there. It is. It's, I mean, I think it'll be really interesting over the years as we probably learn more about parasocial relationships. Parasocial relationships. Yeah. If you're a regular around the interwebs like me, then you've heard the word parasocial thrown around a lot by now. Parasocial interaction is a Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. Whether someone's talking about John Mulaney or their favorite influencer. They're not your friends. They're not your friends. <laughs> but and see, out. when I hear parasocial relationships, I usually just nod my head and I pretend that I know what it means. Same way that I pretend I've watched Citizen Kane. Told Roger Ebert that once. But I haven't. Never seen it. Rosebud. Anyway, the truth is I don't know exactly what parasocial means. And we're going to figure it out after the break. One of the things that makes influencers so successful is that you can very easily relate to them. It's completely different from your relationship with an actual therapist that you see in person. My therapists in the past have been completely unrelatable. They wanted me to know nothing about their lives outside the office. It's as if they didn't exist outside the office to an extent that I once asked my couple's therapist, where he got his beautiful postmodern lamp and couch, and he just looked at me as if I'd asked him what he names his penis. I still don't know where that lamp came from. So real-life therapists seem to want you to know as little as possible about their lives. But influencers, influencers share a lot about their lives. We see them not just on a couch. We see them talking about themselves and their stories. And that's the linchpin of the influencing industrial complex. We have an intimate connection with influencers, and that is playing off this little nugget of human nature that is just dying, dying to connect with people, even if they aren't people we know in real life. And that's the crux of a parasocial relationship. But even though it's really heightened in the world of influencing, it's not unique to influencing, not at all. It goes back some ways. Celebrity comes with an interesting and weird relationship with people, right? That's Angel Christan. I'm an assistant professor of communication at Stanford. I was trained as a sociologist and I study how people use and make sense of algorithmic technologies. She is here to once again tell us that none of this is anything new. Social media didn't create parasocial relationships. As human beings, we are naturally inclined to seek connection and to imagine things about people we like and respect, even if we've never met them in person. On the one hand, because you are famous, people recognize you and project all kinds of feelings onto you, right? And, and so that's like very much, for example, what Rousseau was talking about already in the 18th century. Yeah, okay. Angel is going to bring this back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and how he used to say that so many of his fans, of his philosophy, felt like they knew him. 
people think they know a guy named Rousseau. That guy is not me. Uh, I have nothing to do with me, right? It's like, like I'm Jean-Jacques, like this Rousseau guy is like someone else. Like that's, that's just not me. This idea goes all the way back to the beginning of the printing press and the rise of the celebrity philosopher in the 18th and 19th centuries. These were men like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that is my French accent, and Voltaire, the one-name wonder, the Madonna of his time. We call them philosophers, but isn't philosophy just pretentious self-help? Hmm, something to think about. So as more and more people were reading the work of Rousseau and Voltaire, they hung on their every word and they made heroes of these guys and they started guiding their own lives by these teachings. And as they were following them, they also built up whole identities around these men based just off their words and not who they actually were. And these reflections, the more famous you get, the more this reflection is kind of distorted, right? It's this kind of like distorted, like funny house type of mirror. And that's very much something that's been around since the 18th century. And I think that you could even say since the invention of mass media, right? So in the 18th century, it was uh, book printing. And the fact that, you know, the books of Voltaire and Rousseau were typically kind of circulating very widely, much, much in a much more wider ways than any of the previous kind of famous people, you know, writing and, and images had been circulating. So that very much has to do with mass media. Then you had kind of a, a, a next step in this kind of uh, rise of like mass fame and mass celebrity with uh, printed newspapers, then another one with radio, then another one with television. Television. Television in the way that it gave birth to a new kind of celebrity who came directly into your home, very intimate, very, very intimate, is how we come to the term parasocial. Parasocial was officially coined by the sociologists Donald Horton and Richard Wool in 1956, and it referred to the relationship between an audience and television stars. They identified a kind of psychological relationship experienced by members of an audience in their mediated encounters with certain performers in the mass media, particularly on television. And now today, this one-sided relationship completely extends to how audience members often feel about social media personalities and influencers. Boom. And of course, that includes mental health influencers like Amanda White. Members of Amanda's audience can often feel like they truly know her, that they might even be friends with her. Yeah, I think there, there's so much potential for these types of relationships in the modern environment, and especially in the modern consumer environment, where we're talking about Instagram and social media. Uh, there's huge incentives on behalf of, of influencers to build their following, and that uh, entails sort of a letting in of uh, their, their followers and their fans sort of into their lives to a large extent. That's Dr. Matt Johnson. I am a professor and researcher uh, focusing specifically on the intersection between neuroscience and marketing. And do influencers have an incentive to kind of cultivate these parasocial relationships? Because we know that engagement, so the more someone likes you on the platform, boosts the algorithm, all of those things. So aren't they kind of looking to cultivate these kinds of relationships? They are, they are. It seems that they are. At least, uh, I, mean, I, think, I think parasocial relationships can be sort of an unintended secondary consequence of other incentives that influencers have to 
build massive followings and to generate sort of a sense of connection with them and, and to generate the sense of influence that they have over uh, their, their followers and their fans. Influencing basically thrives off parasocial relationships. It's how influencers reel you in. And it's why branded posts and selling your shit work so well on social media. Influencers feel like our friends and they integrate themselves into a lot of different aspects of our lives. Every single emotional pull from an influencer is just a big part of the social media money-making machine. Are there any dangers in any of this? Well, there certainly have been instances where parasocial relationships do compel the individual and does motivate the individual to actually reach out to the person. And then I think when mental health becomes involved, it just sort of pours gasoline onto that dynamic. Because um, really, when it comes to mental health, the influence of themselves, they're bearing their soul and they're becoming vulnerable. But more and more, as certain mental health topics have become destigmatized, and there's incentive for influencers to gain followers, uh, and vulnerability can be a great tool to do that. Uh, this can sort of trigger these these very sort of warm feelings with fans, and this I think can can sort of spur uh, sort of a broader range and sort of a, a deeper. Uh, iteration uh, of these types of parasocial relationships. You posted a tweet that I found very chilling uh, where you said, deprived of actual human connection, the mind develops a relationship with itself. Yeah, that is sort of how I've, I've come to think about it, that we do have a just, again, sort of a genuine need to connect with our, our fellow humans. And that's just really, really crucial to the human condition. And uh, there is sort of an analogy there when it comes to deprivation, when it comes to other human needs, other physiological needs. So we know that, you know, when you're hungry and you don't have caloric intake, your body will effectively start eating itself uh, to a certain extent. Your stomach sort of turns inwards. And it's same with our social needs. So we have this social cognition. We have this ability to simulate the process of other person's inner experience. And when you are deprived of actual social input, Social cognition sort of turns inwards on itself. And it can, I think, be easy to be uh, drawn into people that will promise you openness and vulnerability and, and mental health uh, assistance when maybe they're not sort of the best suited to be able to, to delegate that type of advice. In the past year or so, both Facebook and Twitter, after a ton of hullabaloo, have finally started warning people when misinformation might creep into their feeds information about vaccines, political speech, and maybe, just maybe, they need to think about adding a warning for mental health, too. Because what we found out is that there are real legal ramifications here, and they can destroy the lives of both audiences and influencers. It's a quagmire, a muddy, muddy, never-ending story, kind of quicksandy, that horse is not getting out of that quicksand, quagmire. And we're going into it after the break. Atreyu! All right, so we've determined that influencers, viewers, their consumers, their audience are very susceptible to developing parasocial relationships with them. It is a vulnerable place to be in. But there is also a vulnerability for the creator, for the mental health influencer. And that goes back to what we talked about with Delilah on the last episode, that there is such a huge responsibility for all creators and all advice givers 
to think about what they're putting out there and how that will impact people. And something very interesting that I found out during this reporting is that creators could actually get into legal trouble if they overstep the boundaries of their position. Here's Amanda White again. Because essentially social media has blown up so much and technically the American Psychological Association, which is kind of like the board that governs therapists, it hasn't really caught up with like social media ethics totally. So it's very strange with the ethics with that, where if someone is saying they're suicidal or something like that, if I respond to them, someone could sue me and say that I... um developed a relationship with them and I was their therapist and I could be liable. So if someone reaches out um, saying anything related to that, I don't respond and I have like a, I have a highlight in my, um, in my feed with different numbers and things like that to call. And I'll do kind of a disclaimer every once in a while. But yeah, those are ones that I don't respond to because ethically it's just not appropriate or safe for me to respond. So that's when I just say, you know, like, your story deserves to be heard by someone who can listen fully and like, can really walk you through this. And that can't be me. But you know, here are some resources. And that is frustrating. It's frustrating and hard and sad, because Amanda became a therapist, and specifically a therapist who does share things on social media, because she wants to help people. She truly cares about people, and she recognizes this problem and the fact that two things are true here, that Instagram can be dangerous for mental health and also helpful for mental health. It takes work. There's no easy fix. So what's the answer? We all know that self-help and pseudo-psychology have found their way into every single medium since the beginning of media. It's not going anywhere. But I think if I've learned anything reporting this podcast, the first step is just to be aware of it, to think about what we're consuming and who is making it, and to do a little bit of research, to have some goddamn agency, and to find out who the people are behind these accounts. Don't just blindly accept it. And then on the flip side, I think that creators have a very, very real responsibility about what they're putting out there. This is not therapy. This is not a substitute for therapy. This is just some information online. That's Chrissy Powers. Chrissy has been both an influencer and a therapist for the past 10 years. She's an OG lifestyle blogger. She's been doing this for a real long time, before the gram. But she's also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Her license number is on her website, which I appreciate. Because frankly, we shouldn't be afraid of asking people to show us their credentials when they're giving advice to people who could be really, really vulnerable. I talked to Chrissy for a while about trying to figure out an answer to the fact that people are hungry for mental health advice, that they're desperate for it, and also the fact that there's absolutely no limits or boundaries or rules about it. Is the way to kind of negotiate those two things being true to say you should follow people who are saying exactly that, that this is not therapy. These are some guidelines. This is some information. But if you need help, please get the help you need in person. Yeah, exactly. That that these people aren't trying 
to persuade you away from actually seeing a professional. And that, you know, maybe it's like just the information that you see online that gets you curious about it. All, I mean, I love it for the fact that it's destigmatizing mental health and that it's helping people just see like, I'm not alone in this. And this is, okay, wow, this is normal. I think it definitely has a wonderful place on the internet. But then also you can't just stay there. You got to go get the help. You got to know that this person is not your therapist. It's like all of the things, I think, on social media that... It's a great place to share information and stories and to feel less alone. But you've got to you've got to make the boundaries. You've and you've got to know. You just have to be really aware of what you're consuming. One hundred percent. And in the beginning of Instagram, none of us were. We were just like, oh my gosh, this is so fun, and I get to see, you know, who, you know, my neighbor, what my neighbor's doing. And then all of a sudden, it was like, oh wow, I can follow people I don't know, and I can oh God, I have like a window into their lives, and then. None of us were questioning, is this actually good for me? See how this slippery slope came about? None of us questioned it. And then we did start questioning it. And then we're like, but I like it. Uh As we've been saying all along, there are great things about mental health Instagram. I love following Amanda White. I'm going to keep following her. I might try to hang out with her in real life, too. But it can't be our only form of therapy. And we, as consumers, have to be in control of how we strike that balance. Don't use social media for all of your answers or your therapy. Approach it all with curiosity and skepticism. Enjoy what is good. Throw away what is bad. But definitely, definitely go into the real world when you need actual help. If we've proven one thing in this episode, it's that it is definitely dangerous to consume all of this in a bubble by yourself. And it is so vital to surround yourself with real people to give you real perspectives. I personally can't take the virtual world anymore. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, I've been going a little crazy because I've been trying to process this all by myself. Just typing away. And when I get to this place, this crazy place, that's when I like to call up the Glynis. The Glynis. All right. So where does this leave you, Jill? Like, how are you feeling after all these different conversations? This is kind of an intense episode and also so fascinating. No, it is. Uh, I I don't want to be on mental health Instagram. Any, I don't. I don't really want to look at it anymore. I really liked talking to Amanda White, actually. Uh, And she's a therapist who's here in Philly. And I'm hoping it's not too weird to cross to cross some kind of line now, some parasocial line to be like, oh, you're here. Maybe maybe you have appointments. Maybe maybe I've just used this podcast to get myself a therapist. And if that worked, amazing. But I'll also bet that, you know, I don't know if she takes my insurance. It's so funny when I think, because I've only known my therapist on a screen and I was thinking- your therapist, your ther- wait a second, back up a second. Your therapist is virtual, right? Well, because when I started with her, it was still under pandemic rules, which mm-hmm. are shifting. And so I've only been with her now a month or so, but mm-hmm. I was thinking the other day, would it be strange to meet her in person now? Because our dynamic is very much 
virtual on a screen. I don't know how tall she is. I don't know what she looks like from the neck down. I don't know any of her body language. It's almost like having a pen pal or like, like when you go on a first date with someone you've been texting with, you're like, I've made myself vulnerable to you, but it felt safe through a screen and now to meet you in person. And so I think that's also a weird dynamic that's been established here. It's also strange. I just keep thinking about something Matt Johnson said um, when he said that when you're deprived of actual human connection, the mind develops a relationship with itself. And I, that was, it, it gave me chills and it terrified me. And I guess where I'm at, the big conclusion that I've come to right now is I want more real humans in my life and less screens. And that's what's going to help my mental health. You know, you came here. Glennis and I saw each other in real life under terrible circumstances. <laughs> my, son, my son was in the hospital with a concussion and Glennis got on a train and came here because she's the greatest friend in the whole world. But just your physical presence that helped me, that saved me, right? Right. And I want more of that. I'm craving more of that. More real people in real life and less people on Instagram and less even friends on my screens. I think the answer for me is putting down my phone for now. Which is where we ended last season. I know. Just keep going. Just keep circling back. But I don't, I I mean, this ties into mental health because you you go to therapy because you're in these cycles of behavior you can't break, right? And it's Mm -hmm. interesting to me that in seeking therapy, uh, the solution for seeking therapy online is to get offline. Like we're all, we all know the answer. We all want to get off our phones. And yet Mm -hmm. in order to help us cope with this, we're drawn back into our phones. Like we're seeing this replay over and over and over again. Then maybe they are. The answer is that there is no answer. No, I think the answer is we need to regulate the use of this the same way we do cigarettes and drugs. But I, I suspect we're a long ways away from that. Oh, yes. My solution for right now is more more, more real people in, in the real world. I can't get off totally. I can't. I have to do, use it for work. But I know for a fact my mental health will improve the more time I spend with real humans in the real world. Yes. Agreed. So you want to get on a train today and come see me? <laughs> I will soon. Okay. That was a weirdly like fun that. weekend, despite the terrible circumstances. Um, oh, it, it was t- it was terrible. I mean, we were you and I were stuck in a children's hospital with a concussed four year old, and yet the three of us did manage to bring joy yes. into that room. Charlie did a bunch of puzzles. Like we had, we had that was, and that's and that's my village. The name of the first mental health episode was. Where's my village? And the truth is, you're my village, and I want my village to be with me in the real world. Yes. Agreed. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) We solved solved the problems of the world right there. See you in the real world. See you in the real world. See you there. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so we didn't solve all of the world's problems. But I think we solved a little problem. I might not have a therapist who takes my insurance yet, but what I have learned is that seeing and talking to the people that I love, that I care about, that care about me, helps my mental health more than Instagram. For now. At the beginning of this episode, we asked, how are we all going to feel better? And the answer, at least for me, is to connect in real life. Go to the beach with your friends, Take a train to visit the people who don't live close to you. Call a friend. 
text a friend. Show up at a friend's house like Kimmy Gibbler and just say, hey, can you have a coffee on your stoop with me? Or hey, can I hold your screaming child while you take a shower? We've got to go back out into the real world. We've got to turn off that thing in our pocket. Our mental health depends on it. But, 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 we're not putting it down forever. No. There's still things that are useful on that device. And next week, we're going to talk about a place on Instagram that is so complicated and so thorny, but also so necessary because there's not nearly enough support out there for women going through it. We're talking about fertility Instagram, my friends. There are infertility influencers out there. And at the time, most of them were not physicians. And the large majority were actually patients sharing their own stories and sharing what was happening in their lives and kind of creating like a community. I don't think I would have gotten pregnant if it wasn't for Instagram. One of the things that boggles my mind is, you know, we talk about as a society how much work needs to be done on destigmatizing infertility and pregnancy loss. If we can't share that to social media, which is where we all sort of live now, how are we going to do that? <sighs> Take care of yourselves. Under the Influence is hosted and reported by me, Joe Piazza. Our senior producer is Emily Marinoff. Glynis McNichol is our editor. Abu Zafar is our producer. We got additional production help from Aaron Peterson, and our associate producer is Lauren Phillip. Sound design and mixing from Jackie Huntington. Our theme was composed by Jessica Kranchich. Additional music by Jessica Kranchich and Jackie Huntington. Anna Stumpf is our consulting producer, and we are executive produced by me, Joe, and Nikki Tor.